and teaches. Our scripture reading is from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Morning. Today's gospel text, uh, we just read the New Testament reading for this week. Today's gospel text is that of the prodigal son. So we'll look at that in a little bit more depth. One of my favorite little details that Jesus includes in that parable is the, uh, the wayward son. When he is far from home, his, and he comes to his senses. We'll look at that verse in just a moment. But when he, Jesus says, comes to his senses and then begins to re- rehearse the speech that he'll give to his father when he uh, is going to return home. I was thinking this week of um, that act of like rehearsing lines that are really important, really important lines. When I was in eighth grade, I uh, had a, uh, a role, one of the lead roles in uh, <laughs> the musical <laughs> Oliver. And since eighth grade, since that musical, I have had the recurring nightmare of arriving for the first uh, showing of that musical, not having memorized my lines, nor attended any of the rehearsals with the rest of the cast, but finding myself on stage. And only at that point do I realize that I have not put in any work to memorize any of my lines. Anybody else have a similar Recurring nightmare, yeah, any other uh, thespians in the room? Yes, oh boy, I'm sure, yeah, you look at me and you think, there's a guy who's musical material. (laughs) But we're gonna look a little bit at um, that rehearsal of lines, and we're gonna look at the gospel text, this, the parable of the prodigal son, in uh, combination with Psalm 32 which in some ways is kind of a, uh, when you couple those two, that they fit together really well. And I'm going to try something that may be, I don't know, heretical, but I'm going to um, kind of assign the lines of Psalm 32 to the characters in, uh, in the prodigal son parable. Is anybody interested in uh, coming up and reciting lines and playing a part? Okay, that's what I thought. So I'll just do it myself. There's a key moment in both the, the psalm, Psalm 32, and in uh, this parable of acknowledgement of wrongdoing. This is probably why these texts are assigned for today in Lent. 
There's acknowledgement of wrongdoing. So in the psalm, that's, that comes in verse 5. Then I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not hide my iniquity. That's kind of the linchpin of that psalm. Likewise, in the parable, the decisive moment comes in verse 17, where we find the prodigal son rehearsing his lines. Luke 15, 17, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired hands have bread enough to spare, but here I am dying of hunger. And he proceeds to do this rehearsal. I will get up and go to my father, he says to himself. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. So again, the appointed psalm for this Sunday is Psalm 32. And in it, the psalmist is looking back upon the experience, to, the experience of having sinned, having repented, and having received forgiveness. The Apostle Paul may have had Psalm 32 in mind when he penned this portion of the, uh, the epistle to the Corinthians that we just looked at a moment ago. In 2 Corinthians, again, we'll read verses, snippets of 17, 18, and 19. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, the, the sin, the confessed sin that has been forgiven, passed away, behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Not counting their trespasses against them. So the psalm for today divides pretty neatly into three parts. Part one comes in verses one and two. And the psalmist is in the position of looking back upon the experience of having been forgiven. So it kind of sets the stage for the entirety of the psalm. Next, in verses 3 through 7, it's kind of part 2 of the psalm, the psalm recounts the, the pre-forgiveness experience of being in sin. It's kind of a beat-by-beat beat recounting of that pre-forgiveness experience, including the, the pain that is accompanied, that accompanies the, the pain caused by sin. And then finally, in verses 8 through 11, the, the kind of concluding part of the psalm, the psalm enjoins the hearers to trust God and to rejoice in God's forgiveness. I want to focus particularly on the second part of this psalm, that, that part of the psalm in verses 3 through 7. We'll get to all three parts kind of in passing, but I want to focus on that second part of the psalm. In fact, almost every line of the psalm as I said a moment ago, can, can be applied to a character in the parable of the prodigal son. I'm going to try to do that. I don't know how convincing it's going to be. But this second portion of Psalm 32 in particular really perfectly encapsulates the experience of the wayward son. So let's, let's read that portion of the psalm together. Beginning in verse 3, While I kept silence, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. Think about what you know of the, the parable of the prodigal son, his experience of being in the far country. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. Then I acknowledged my sin to you. and I did not hide my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Selah. Therefore let all who are faithful offer prayer to you. At a time of distress, the rush of mighty waters shall not reach them. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with glad cries of deliverance. Selah. What's interesting in verse 3 is that even though the psalmist's sin goes unconfessed, God is still present. 
God's presence in verse 3 is experienced as a, a heaviness, but it is worth noting that God here is present instead of absent. And later in Psalm 32, just, just read it, the psalmist recounts God's presence not as a heaviness, but as a source of comfort and protection, a hiding place that surrounds the psalmist with love. There's this juxtaposition of the, the presence of God experiences heaviness and then as, as hiding place. And what I love about this is that God's posture towards sinful humanity and forgiven humanity is the same. He is utterly near. What changes is humanity's experience of God's presence. Does that make sense? You with me? This isn't just me saying this. Okay. Whereas the sinner harboring unconfessed sin interprets God's presence as heaviness, the sinner whose sin is forgiven experiences God's forgiveness, interprets his presence as a hiding place. We see this very dynamic on display in the parable of the prodigal son, of course. And Psalm 32 encapsulates the prodigal son's changing understanding of the father's presence as maybe a heaviness, something to get out from under, and then something that he comes back to in desperate need. There's a a 16th century icon of this parable of the prodigal son. It comes from a monastery in Athos, and it beautifully illustrates this changing experience of the presence of God that, that both the psalm and the parable get at, presence of the father. In the icon, the father is depicted as Jesus. So we've got an interpretation of the psalm, not only a depiction, but an interpretation of the, of the parable. On the right side of the icon, and my apologies to uh, Arkansas Razorbacks fans, uh, these hogs, I lost last night. I'm sorry, I just want to acknowledge that, get that out in the open. I don't mean to bring up a, a sore subject, rub salt in the wound. But on the right side of the icon, the prodigal is shown stooped over among the pigs. And this, of course, depicts verses 14 through 16 of Luke 15. And Adam, you can leave the the icon up as I read. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who had sent him to his fields, fields to feed the pigs. He would gladly have filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. So as we look at the the wayward, exhausted son, we can hear not only the parable itself, but also the words of Psalm 32, perhaps, in the background. While I kept silence, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. Your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. So that's what's going on on the right side of the image. On the left side of the image, turn your attention there, we see the son again, this time in the arms of the father, whom the icon reveals to be Jesus himself. The left side of the icon portrays the events of verses 20 to 24. So he set off and went to his father, but while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. Then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, but the father said to his slaves, quickly bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet and get the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost 
and is found. And they began to celebrate. What's remarkable, I think, about this icon, and there are many things, I'm probably going to beat it to death here, but what's remarkable is that the prodigal son is stooped further when he's in his father's arms than he is among the pigs. But again, if we can hear the psalm echoing in the background of this icon, it reshapes our understanding of the son's stooping. Whereas he once wanted nothing more than to get out from under his father's roof, now he experiences a new dimension of the father's love. The father's embrace is protective. He's completely enveloped in love. We can almost hear him speak the words of Psalm 32 to his father. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with glad cries of deliverance. There are other famous depictions of this scene. We won't take the time to look at them this morning, but the father welcomes the stooping son, but the father remains upright. And what I find particularly moving about this image is the way that it shows the father as Christ himself also stooping. Not standing upright, but stooped in the same way that the son is. In the father's stooping, we can see the pain that he has undergone because of the severed relationship with his son. And when I look at the image in this light, I can hear the words of Hebrews 4. The author speaking of Jesus says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who in every respect has been tested as we are, yet without sin. Look at the image again. Recall all that the prodigal has suffered, both physically and emotionally, before arriving back at home. He's been humiliated. He's been destitute. He's been dehumanized. He's been starving. And beyond all of those physical hardships, he undoubtedly knows the emotion, the, 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 the scorn, the, the shame that awaits him when he returns home. According to custom, there was actually a ceremony to, to kind of formalize the cutting off of the wayward returner who had lived lavishly among the Gentiles. The elders would gather everyone, including the children, so that they could see an example of what happens to the wayward. The elders would fill a jar with parched corn and nuts and then smash that jar and declare the wayward son as cut off from the community. So this is perhaps what the son expects to happen. Kind of heightens the irony of what actually does happen in the parable. Or in Deuteronomy 21, if that wasn't bad enough, take a look at this. <laughs> if someone has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey his father and mother, who does not heed them when they discipline him, then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of the town at the gate of that place. They shall say to the elders of his town, the son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. You will not obey us. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of the town shall stone him to death. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, so shall you purge the evil from your midst, and all Israel will hear and be afraid. And yet, in the midst of all of this real and anticipated anguish, here is the father 
stooping to embrace the prodigal son. I'm not done yet, so Adam, if you want to throw that back up. I want to make a few more observations about this icon. As we've noted, the icon doesn't just depict one isolated scene in the parable. It's obvious to see. It's depicting the prodigal son two different times. So in so doing, it kind of dramatizes the events of the entire parable. We're invited to see the events it depicts sequentially. So of course, what happens on the right side is what happens first. Then what happens on the left side is what happens next. Everybody see that? First, the son is in the far country. Later, he returns home to the father's embrace. But because of the constraints of this icon, of having to cram all of the action of this parable into one limited canvas, what we end up with is the illusion that the son's journey from the far country back home is like comically short. In an odd way, this is what I find most moving about this image. The prodigal son is nowhere near as far away from home as he thinks he is. At any point, he can reach out and touch his savior. And I think this brings to mind a couple of truths. First, that God is mysteriously present to us, whether we're in the household of faith or in the far country, whether we find ourselves far away or, or close. And for those of us who are believing this morning for wayward loved ones, perhaps the Spirit might restore lost hope and prompt us, even as we're looking at this image, to rejoice in the mystery of just how laughably close God is to those who are far off. Because of what God has done in Christ, the distance between the old passing away and the new coming is really as close as our next breath. Reconciliation is at hand. I don't want to leave you with a picture of Deuteronomy that is completely like hopeless and you know, still in your rebellious son. So let's take a look at another passage from Deuteronomy. I couldn't get this passage out of my head as I saw the icon in this way, the closeness of rebelliousness and mercy being juxtaposed. So from Deuteronomy chapter 30, just a few chapters later, seems to have been a pretty big change of heart here. Surely this commandment that I'm commanding you today is not too hard for you, nor is it too far away. It is not in heaven that you should say who will go up to heaven for us and get it for us so that we may hear it and observe it. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say who will cross to the other side of the sea for us and get it for us so that we may hear it and observe it. No. The word is very near to you. It is in your mouth and in your heart for you to observe. You see, because of what God has done in Christ, the psalmist's reality of I confessed, you forgave, the immediacy of that becomes a reality. It can be uttered in the same breath. And we might only be seeing what's on the right side of that image. Sorry, Adam, you could put it up again. But the love shown on the left side of the icon lies just outside of our limited field of vision. The theologian Robert Farrar Capon says, and Matt alluded to this earlier in his prayer, 
We are forgiven before, during, and after our confession of sins. And we're forgiven for one reason only, because Jesus died for our sins and rose for our justification. And I'm still not done with the icon, so. I can't help but notice who is absent from this icon, who's not depicted. There's one character who's not there. And granted, I'm only giving you like the bottom third of this. It gets really wacky as you go up. So maybe we'll save that for another morning. But who's absent? Of course, it's the older son. We've talked about the father's house and the far country. But if we set aside kind of the physical geography of this parable and focus on the spiritual geography of the parable, we maybe get an idea of why the older son doesn't appear in the icon. Here's what I mean by that. The older son has been faithfully serving in his father's house for his entire life. And it's probably not insignificant that when he is mentioned toward the end of the psalm, Jesus makes note of this important detail that he is serving in the field upon the return of the prodigal son. He's laboring. So there's a way in which the older son's journey from the field to the father's house is actually much more difficult and arduous than the younger son's journey back home from the far country. If we set aside, again, the physical geography of the parable and we look at the spiritual geography of the parable, many of us might have an easier time identifying with the older son's frustration, even though we're physically present and going about what we think we understand to be the father's business. We might feel a sense of spiritual estrangement that is further than any far country the prodigal son might have visited. Theologian Chris Green sums up this tension in a way that many of us might be able to identify this morning when he says, it's easier to leave home and come back again than it is to be home when you've never left. One of the most striking characteristics, I think, of Psalm 32, to jump back there for a moment, is its drastic changes in tone. So verses 1 and 2 and verses 8 through 11 almost sound as though they're being uttered by an entirely different character or cast of characters. Walter Brueggemann notices these abrupt changes, and he says there's a temptation for the religious to dwell on the instruction of verses 1 and 2 and 8 and 11, but to neglect the transformational act of verses 3 through 7, which costs, which costs. Otherwise, we might have long since done it. Reading Psalm 32 alongside this parable in Luke 15, I can't help but apply the sections of this psalm again to the characters in the parable themselves. The older brother, dutiful and self-assured, is the one described by, or perhaps who even speaks, verses 1 and 2 and verses 8 and 9, those kind of didactic and preachy verses in the psalm. While those middle verses, the ones that recount what Brighamon calls the costly transformational act, those are the ones spoken by the younger brother. But what about the, the father's lines? 
Sometimes I fear that because the Father is automatically cast as Christ, and of course the icon that we looked at reveals him to be Jesus, we might not consider the ways that we're invited to identify with him. I think casting ourselves in the role of the Father might be instructive for us. We're to welcome the wayward ones, as he does. We're to extend mercy. We're to invite those who are hungry to partake. We're to invite those who are guilt-ridden or stooped in shame to celebrate God's unfathomable mercy, but not before we ourselves stoop with them. So as long as we're assigning these lines in Psalm 32 to the characters in the parable, I want to take a crack at maybe saying that the Father is the one who utters the final two verses, verse 10 and verse 11. So consider first verse 10. We're close to wrapping up here. Many are the torments of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds those who trust in the Lord. If we hear these words in the voice of the Father, spoken to the younger son, I think it changes the words, especially of the tone of verse 10. We might hear these words, many are the torments of the wicked, not as judgment that is far removed from the torments that the wicked endure, but they're spoken through tears as the sorrow-filled longing of a parent toward a wayward child. Son, I see that you've experienced so much pain. Many are the torments of the wicked. Now I want you to experience what it's like to be surrounded by steadfast love. So if verse 10 is an address from the father to the younger brother, I want to pick up that thread that I laid down earlier and kind of left you hanging if you identified with the older brother. Verse 11 is the father's invitation to you and me, older brothers, those of us whose journey has maybe not wandered far from the father's house, but in many ways the return to the father's house is much more difficult, having never really left home. The Father says to us, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Seen in this way, verse 11 is a call not only to rejoice because our own sins have been forgiven, which is certainly cause for rejoicing, but also, and, and perhaps more significantly for us older brothers, because the sins of our enemies have been forgiven. If you've been in the field stewing over a wrong that has been done to you or to someone that you love, hear these words of Psalm 32, verse 11. From the one who stands ready to forgive you, not only for your wrongs, but also for the wrongs done to you. He invites you to extend that same forgiveness, that same mercy, that you might have your perspective altered enough, that I might have my perspective altered enough to see the forgiveness of my enemy as cause for celebration. No matter who we are in the parable, it ends with an invitation to a table of celebration. Musicians, if you'd come, I'm going to read a, a poem 
as our invitation to the table. It's a poem by uh, George Herbert. It's called Love Three. It's in a sequence. Um, and I'm, I'm just going to kind of leave this here. So if, if poetry can count as prayer, give me some grace. I guess this, this will be our prayer invitation to the table. I'm not going to take much time to, to unpack this poem, but I'm just going to kind of let it stand on its own two feet. Uh, there are two, two characters, again, in this poem <laughs> that have lines. The first is love, capital L. I'll give you one Sunday school guess as to who that is. Uh, the other is the, the speaking, the, po the poetic persona, I. So as we come to the table, Matt, if you'd, if you'd join me, uh, we'll, we'll make two lines here down the, the center aisles. You'll hear the words spoken over you, the body of Christ broken for you, blood of Christ shed for you. Read this poem, and as I do so, reflect on Psalm 32, also the parable of the prodigal son. I don't think this poem was written with that in mind, but boy, does it resonate. But anyway, I said I wasn't going to do this, but I've unpacked it maybe beyond. <laughs> let, me just, let me just read it. Love bade me welcome, yet my soul drew back, guilty of dust and sin. But quick-eyed love, observing me grow slack from my first entrance in, drew nearer to me, sweetly questioning if I lacked anything. A guest, I answered, worthy to be here. Love said, you shall be he. I, the unkind, ungrateful, ah, my dear, I cannot look on me. Love took my hand and smiling did reply, who made the eyes but I? Truth, Lord, but I have marred them. Let my shame go where it doth deserve. And know you not, says love, who bore the blame? My dear, then, then I will serve. You must sit down, says love, and taste my meat. So I did sit and eat. Would you join us at the table?